This episode of the 343 podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics is offering you an additional 10% discount because they know that you are serious about high-quality soccer products if you are listening to this show. Training balls from Bounce Athletics can be customized with your logo and your color scheme and will only cost you about $15 to $20 per ball. And if you compare similar textured training balls from Nike, Adidas, or Select, those would be in the $50 to $60 range. Now, I've personally tested the balls from Bounce Athletics. They feel great. They look great. They roll great. They hold air, which is super important. They are legit, and I highly recommend them. To top everything off, Bounce Athletics will send you complimentary mock-ups of what your balls will look like with your logo on them. Just email your logo to info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. And remember to mention 343 so you get that additional 10% discount when you place your order. This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Bobby Moore is a fantastic storyteller, but not made up stories, stories that he lived and breathed while being a member of the U.S. Youth National Team, a member of the team that is often forgotten about. Bobby is a former U.S. Youth National Team equipment manager, and one of the stories on his personal blog caught my attention, and that is why I reached out to see if he would be interested in talking about his experiences on this podcast. And we actually ended up talking several times before recording and came up with the idea for a different type of intro that I normally do. So in just a moment, you are going to hear Bobby reading one of those stories. After that, you'll hear our conversation about American soccer and the role that he's played in it and the role that he is playing in it now. And it's a perspective that we've never had on this show before. So I hope that you enjoy listening to something a little different and seeing the game through a new lens. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast or other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and you can help other people find the show by giving it a five-star rating or a review or simply sharing it on social media. But the best way to help support the 343 podcast is by signing up for the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program. What you get with that is an online program that provides you with the best coaching education for a fraction of the price of other licenses and courses that are out there. Before this podcast existed, I was a member of the 343 coaching program. I was able to learn things that added value to my team and to my personal education without getting confused or distracted by excess or useless information. The 343 membership program teaches you a proven possession-based methodology and allows you to study and learn from one of the best coaches in American soccer. And that education is delivered to you through videos of real training and real games. You also get access to all of the core exercises that will help you learn and enable you to start coaching possession soccer yourself. You also get eBooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on-field clinics, and there is a big, huge online forum for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. And I'm emphasizing that because I just spent some time in there and that thing is a freaking gold mine. So if you are a member, you are already experiencing that. And if you are not a member, you are completely missing out on that huge beneficial experience of having the forum to exchange ideas with other like-minded coaches and share ideas with people that are passionate about playing that same way. So playing possession soccer, super valuable. Uh, you get all of that 24-7 online access for the incredible price of just $295. Uh, if you want more information about the program, you can visit 343coaching.com. On the homepage, there's some videos of the teams and the players that are featured throughout the membership program. So if you just need a taste of it, you can go get it there. Uh, once again, that is 343coaching.com. All right, it's episode time. I hope that you guys enjoyed this conversation that I recorded with Bobby Moore. And I would love it if you can give me some feedback after as well. So uh, enjoy. Hey, 
Tales of the Balls That I Got Back by Bobby Moore May 2017, Japan Jellyfish, hundreds of them, all dead. They were spread out like a minefield across a gray stretch of muck where the low tide had left them behind on Osaka Bay. I only had to navigate through a chain-link fence, over a cement break wall, and drop precariously onto a gaping spill pipe to see them. But I hadn't braved those obstacles to look upon a bunch of slimy bubble creatures thirsting to ruin my day even after their deaths. I was peering beyond them at an Adidas Krasava matchball, just waiting in the shallows like a buoy. The price for a ball like that does go for about $160 American, but it's not like I didn't have bags of others back at the field. And there was something about seeing it there, so close, yet so far, languidly sloshing back and forth in the water. It drove me mad, I just couldn't let it go. It's amazing where a ball can end up when it misses the target. Being the former equipment manager for the U-20 men's national team afforded me the luxuries of exotic travels and remarkable access to some rising stars. But it also gave me night terrors. Lots of them. More than occasionally I'd wake up in some hotel room halfway across the world in the middle of the night because my internal clock had just collapsed. Then I'd spend an eternity in the darkness trying to work out where I was. However puzzling those instances were, they were never terrifying. What was terrifying was shooting up rigid at 3am having just dreamed that a player's stud had fallen out and I'd forgotten the spares. He steps up to take a match winning penalty and his plant leg slips out from under him. My title had as many roles as responsibilities, but none so undervalued as ball boy. If my travels across the globe have taught me anything, it's that football is possible, anywhere, as long as there's a ball. Sure, if I'd forgotten the cones, the bibs, the sticks, the hurdles, the uniforms, the boot bags, etc., and only remembered the ball bags, that wouldn't have gone over well. Still, fundamentally the ball was the most precious piece, and I would look after them as if they were my own children. Now, that being said, I'm sure if you ask a parent, they've never seen their baby hit on a full volley over an electric chicken wire barrier into a Costa Rican farm field. But you get the gist. Luckily on that occasion, the team's security guard was willing to walk 20 minutes around to fetch it, but not before encountering a native black iguana lurking in the dirt and guarding the ball like an egg. This compulsiveness all started on my first day. The Federation had deployed me on a 60-player U15 boys national team camp in Bradenton, Florida, at the IMG Academy. The sheer number of players alone called for a three-man equipment team, and the higher-ups thought it'd be an ideal opportunity for me to train under some veterans and get some experience. So, when a shooting exercise bore a wayward effort into a nearby creek, my time to prove myself had arrived. I'll get it, I called confidently to my colleagues. No better way to show my merit than to volunteer for a dirty task, right? Arriving on the scene, the ball had gone through some vegetation overgrowth and was sitting stale only ten feet away in a stagnant waterway. Sizing up the situation, the water looked no deeper than a foot, so I ripped off my new Nike boots and peeled off my USA socks. Florida swamps are notorious for their villains, alligators, snakes, even leeches, but how would I look if I came back empty-handed? Plus, I was only going in like three steps, in and out. With a deep inhale, I charged barefoot into the water and was instantly saturated up past my waist. The swampy floor had given way and swallowed me up. In that kind of situation, the mind goes into panic mode. I imagined eels, crocodiles, sharks even, all swimming around my calves. I snapped up the ball and hurled it onto dry land before clawing there myself. I never expected an ovation, and I didn't get one either. What I did get was a few roars of laughter as I trudged back into training, carrying my boots in one hand and that damn ball in the other, looking as if I'd been half-dipped in fudge. I'd like to believe two things happened that day. The first was that I'd earned some respect amongst my new colleagues, even if it was in a ridiculous fashion. The second was that I'd set the bar high for myself when it came to my ball count for the next two years. Because as an equipment manager, no matter how you interpret the phrasing, if you're going to do the job, you're going to need balls. Yo, what's up, dude? I am just uh, trying to survive this polar vortex here in Chicago. <laughs> dude, it's like people are literally freezing, right? Yeah, I, I haven't been out of my house in three days. Uh, luckily, I have something to do tonight, you know, from like a social standpoint. But I'm just, <laughs> it's been negative 13 yesterday was the high, you know, and hardly take the dog out for a walk. So it's uh, it's been a struggle. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's drizzling here in California. It's miserable. <laughs> yeah I'm sure. I'm sure people are freaking out yeah dude uh, it's it's bad actually uh no i won't even i won't even make weather jokes it's not worth it sorry <laughs> um no let's, uh, let's uh let's get into it dude um we've been we've been talking about recording this conversation for quite a while and i'm excited to finally to finally get you on the phone and, and be recording so um maybe 
if, if we could start, maybe just introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about, um, nah, just I- I- introduce yourself and then we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, well, my name is Bobby Moore. Uh, I'm the former equipment manager for the under 20 men's national team in their last World Cup cycle. Um, before that, I worked at Soccer Plus Camps under Tony DeChico, um, doing some coaching there and some administrative work for about five summers in a row. Uh, my playing career uh, consists of youth club Erie Admirals, where I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, before making the jump to the DA in Cleveland with the Cleveland Internationals and eventually finishing out my playing career at uh, Lock Haven University in central Pennsylvania, a Division II school in the NCAA. So, see, so that about sums me up. How uh, how old are you now? I am 29, going on 30 this year. Okay, so that kind of that kind of sets up a couple a couple questions for me then. So, sure, you talked a little bit about your playing experience and you know your your youth youth playing experience. You jumped to the DA, you played college, and I wanted to focus a lot on your experience working with the U20 national team. So I'm curious how you make that jump from player to equipment manager. Like, like that's not a traditional path. So, um, how, how long did it kind of take you to land in that, in that role and, and what kind of led you down that path? Yeah, sure. I guess it all interlinks together as, you know, the soccer world kind of connects. But um, for me, after playing, I actually applied for an internship at Soccer Plus Camps, which was Tony DeChico's, you know, running soccer camp circuit, you know, kind of residential camps all over the country. So it was uh, one of those things where, you know, I met up with a whole bunch of other coaches and spent 10 weeks on the road, kind of hopping week to week to college campus to college campus and and putting on, uh, you know, soccer camps for, for youth players there. Um, so I made a lot of connections kind of just around the country with soccer in general, people that had played in different places, whether it was college or at a professional level in some capacity. Um, and actually, I met a, uh, a friend uh, who I very much consider a friend that uh, was working at U.S. Soccer a couple of years later as the uh, the equipment coordinator um, at the time. His sister had worked for U.S. Soccer in more of a, I think, a, a kind of a role of, of setting up, you know, friendlies and setting up fixtures. Um, I don't exactly know what her capacity was, but. But yeah, so uh, I came on and um, he brought me on and brought on some other friends from our, our Soccer Plus community to kind of work in that equipment role at U.S. Soccer. So it was really just the connections that made it and thought I'd be a good fit for the job. And, and I eventually kind of rose up the ranks very quickly. My, my first camp was with the U15 boys national team in, in IMG at Bradenton, Florida. And, it, you know, with 60 players in that camp, they needed a, a lot of guys on hand for equipment, 60 players and staff. It's a lot of people to out fit in a bunch of nike gear so uh i was brought on there very quickly to uh you know just kind of help out and, and learn the ropes but you know i would say two months later i was with the u20s and kind of stuck with them through that entire cycle which was about a two-year spell so that's how i ended up there and i think just the fact that you know i'd been around the game enough to, to understand what's needed um you know from an equipment standpoint um certainly lent to my my success if you want to call it that describe a little bit about what the job entailed and you, you kind of hinted at, you know, it, it wasn't just you that was, that was on the, you know, on the job. It was, you know, multiple people, very hands-on, I'm assuming, you know, 60 players to outfit, like you mentioned is, is a tall, tall order. So Mm -hmm. what, what was the actual, what was the actual job? Like what, what, what did you guys actually do? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the responsibilities really ranged. It was, uh, you know, for that specific camp with the 60 players, it required three of us. Most of the time when it was just the 20 nationals team, we were bringing in, you know, anywhere from, you know, 20 to, you know, 28 guys. It was just me. And um, the responsibilities obviously are things like, you know, set up the locker rooms when the players come in, all their stuff is there and they're ready to go. But it's also maintaining the equipment to uh, an extent, maintaining the relationship with Nike for the guys that need to you know, be outfitted in boots that the Federation, you know, provides for them uh, from time to time if they're not already on, on contracted boot deals with, you know, with Nike or Adidas, whoever that is. Uh, but it also included, you know, when we were getting you know, camps when we would go like abroad to, you know, say it was the Czech Republic or when we went to Costa Rica for qualifying for a month, you know, we're traveling with, you know, a hundred parcels of, of very large, you know, boxes or very big duffel bags that all need to get across, you know, customs and, and into other countries, 
you know, just on commercial flights. It's not like we had, you know, a private jet flying us everywhere we wanted to go. So that was my responsibility as well as to take the inventory, make sure everything got to these countries. And then, you know, if there was cases, which in many cases there were, where equipment was left behind or didn't make the flight or some bags were missing as what happens time to time when you travel. Um, I had to, you know, identify what those items were and whether or not that affected the training schedule that we had set out. Um, so a little bit of logistical stuff, you know, a little bit of, of preparation stuff. And then there's always the on the field responsibilities where it's sitting on the bench where if a, you know, a stud breaks, um, you know, we can replace that. Um, I think Tyler Adams lost a stud or, or broke a lace at the World Cup and we were able to fix that for him because he had multiple pairs of boots. But that was kind of my responsibility on the sidelines, apart from just getting the jerseys for the players that were coming on as substitutes. No, man, it's super important to hear this side of it because people don't understand that it really requires an army in order in order to, you know, achieve the the highest levels of, of success and not not saying that you know u.s soccer has achieved the highest levels of success but at that level of the game it, it requires an army to to accomplish anything at all and i, I had a conversation recently with tracy ham who is uh, the first american sorry the second american female to complete her uefa a license mm-hmm. and during her course experience her her mentor kind of um, ha- had her sitting down and was talking about the session and and kind of said, hey, like, you know, you're going to be working with your sevens and your elevens and your outside backs and, and blah, blah, blah. And then Tracy was like, well, yeah, what about the rest of the team? And, and the, the UEFA coach was was like, yeah, they'll be with your they'll be with your other assistant coaches. Like, that's fine. Like, they're, they're going to be doing their own thing. And Tracy was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how American soccer is like it's one coach for 20 players like that's it mm-hmm, and, the right. UEFA, and the UEFA coach is like oh like no way like like that's unacceptable no like like I can't believe that and so when you when you kind of get up the you know the ladder in in soccer professional soccer international soccer especially you realize how big the staff and 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 everything really is and and it goes way even way deeper than than your role too like you know chefs and um, you know, travel coordinators and, and it's just like, I, I can go on and on and on. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's, that's why I was super interested in, in talking to you about this because I want people to learn more about this, this experience that you've had and, and how that really, that really impacts the, the success and, and, and trajectory of the team too. Cause I think it's, it's, you know, these are, these are important, important roles. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of people that are really unsung heroes. Um, like you said, they just don't really get a lot of the limelight. People don't really necessarily know they even exist. I know the coordinators at U.S. Soccer that do a great job with the under-20 national team, uh, specifically Corey Frederick, who's been on for you know a couple of years, is completely works behind the scenes, but the trip doesn't happen without him. So um, the amount of hours that those guys put in, the amount of time that they spend on the road, um, it, it's shocking sometimes really. I would talk to him the other day because I've been home for like, you know, I spent like four months away essentially like in Florida, you know, running with not only the other 20 camp, but then running with, you know, the Nike friendlies and that kind of stuff with the DA. So they spend a lot of time away from home and a lot of time working. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a job you have to be ready for because those guys are really what the glue that holds the Federation together, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, Dang, there was a thought that popped in my head as you were as you were talking about that, and I can't remember it now. I got a text message that came in right as I was about to talk, and it distracted me. Um, <laughs> no problem. Um, damn, it was a good thought. Um, okay, well, I, I guess I'll switch gears. Um, well, if oh, it pops oh, back in your mind, we can always revisit I, it. I, I got it. I got it. it came oh, back. nice. I, I'm throwing my hands in the air right now, like I'm like I was saved. Um, <laughs> the the other important aspect of it too especially when you're working with that U15 age group or the, or the U14 age group um, is that a lot of times I, I, my suspicion is, and maybe you can confirm or deny this. Um, my, my suspicion is, is that this is the first uh, sniff at like a professional environment for a lot of the kids when they first show up to the national team. So this is the first time they're getting this experience of having somebody set out their kit or having, you know, all the stuff, you know, laid out on the field already or, having uh, to wear certain clothes while they're traveling and, and things like that. So um, that that professionalism, that introduction to professionalism is is also very, very important. So I'm wondering 
if you could talk a little bit about that experience that, that you had with the U15s and how the kids maybe reacted to it and you know if it, if it is a challenge for them if it is welcomed if it's you know maybe, maybe what are some of the the easy and hard parts of that I don't even know if that's a, a, a relevant question or topic no, it definitely is. It's a, it's certainly a spectrum of, of who's you know, the most professional down to the kids that you know aren't as professional. But at the end of the day, we are talking about kids, and a lot of them come from environments. You know, whether it's a, an MLS academy where maybe they do have an equipment manager, and maybe when they get to the field, everything's ready to go. But you know, at that level, you're pulling kids that you know maybe aren't in the most professional environments at their club. So it's uh you know you do get you know a wide spectrum but it's a learning curve for a lot of those guys where you know with that level sometimes it's you know you're in a hotel in paris it's 11 o'clock at night and you're banging on somebody's door so like hey like we need your training kit we got to do the laundry um they just haven't brought it to you yet but i think the longer the players are in kind of the national pool system where they continue to come into camp time and time again that they start to get the hang of it a little bit more so the professionalism is definitely imposed on them um but as they come in raw you know it it could be, you know, it could be anything. It could be a kid that, that's ready to go and gets it. And then there could be kids that need a little bit of a sterner hand. But um, like I say, it just varies. And tell me what it's like. Describe what it's like traveling with a group of you know, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And you're going to a country where I'm assuming you've probably never been. Um, and, and that's a brand new experience for you right off the bat. And then here you are having to kind of corral an entire you know an entire army's worth the worth the people so what the <laughs> what's that experience like yeah luckily for me again going back to the coordinators they've got everything all figured out so like when we got off the plane we know exactly where we're going we know exactly what baggage claim is there the bus is there already we've hired even you know talking about this army of people that works behind the scenes sometimes there's even tournament liaisons or outside consulting firms that we've helped kind of ease the process to talk to the hotel have the food ready you know have the training field ready so when we get on the ground there that's the work those coordinators have been putting in for months setting up these camps um for me you know just dealing with the, the equipment specifically is you know it, it can go very smoothly it can go very poorly um it, you know it depends just all in the airport sometimes there's a language barrier with uh, you know baggage claim or, or whatever it is so you know it's always you never know what you're going to get um when you get on the ground uh, but you know with the personalities with the players themselves uh, you know, even if you're away for just 10 days with, you know, some kids, whether it's, you know, the kids that are in the 20 national team or the kids that are in the 15 national team, it's, you know, you're, you're just stuck with the same people. And sometimes you don't speak the language of the other people around you because you're in a different country and they get to know each other very quickly. Uh, kids are resilient. Some kids are shy, but, you know, just the, the ability to train with these guys and watch these guys go out on field and compete, they get to know each other pretty quickly. And then they, they establish those relationships. So, you know, when they come back into another camp, whether they get called in in three months or in eight months, um, they know some familiar faces and they can adopt the kids that, you know, necessarily maybe new and then kind of just bring them into the fold. So, you know, with kids like that, I think their personalities, even though you have to wrangle them a little bit, like you say, uh, they, you know, tend to stick together like glue. And, um, you know, I think that's just because they have to lean on each other in those situations. Talk to me a little bit about the difference between working with the U15s, where you, where you initially started, and where you ended with the U20s. What were what were some of the key or big differences in those two groups? Yeah, sure. So the first 15s group I worked with, I said, was that that 60-player camp. And that's actually the only time I did the 15 boys national team. I think I had one camp in between, which may have been in Chula Vista with the 18 women. But the next camp was the 20s. And unless I was doing a side camp with the 18s or, or the 19s, it was pretty much just the U20 national team uh, from then on out for me. But uh, I will say, you know, the things that were being worked on with the 15 boys national team are obviously different than what was going on with the 20s. And part of that was because that first camp was identifying which of those U15 players were going to be in the last residency program at the IMG Academy or in Bradenton, Florida. So, you know, they broke them up into into different groups trying to just identify you know where levels where people are at from a tactical or, or technical proficiency and then they had like kind of scrimmages or games at night uh in between those four groups so you know everyone could get a good look at them and they could decide who was going to be in the full-time uh plans for that residency program and who would be invited in from time to time so that was your group with like you know with josh Sargent and that particular age group so a lot of talented players in that group um 
but uh, at the end of the day, I think they only had room for for so many of them at residency, and, and now residency doesn't even exist anymore. So, so that was really the gist of that camp was identifying talent or or reassessing talent that had already identified and had been in past camps. Um, with the twenties, we pretty much knew our pool. Um, Tab was the coach. We we knew you know for an understanding of like who was going to come in. Um, mainly depended on on who we could get. Um, there was players that you know, were at European clubs uh, that we would have loved to get for qualifying in the World Cup, but you know their clubs, you know, deemed it unnecessary that they wanted to release their players to be there because they were playing on the reserves of the under 23s. Uh, we had a situation where one of the players for the World Cup uh, wasn't released because their under 23 game um, in in Germany actually ran too close to the World Cup fixtures. He would have been an important player for us, but. You know, they just, uh, you know, the relationships with the clubs were just, you know, hit or miss. So um, we got who we could get, but we always had an idea who was coming in. And, you know, at the end of the day, that one was preparing for a World Cup. You know, it was we under 20 national team. The World Cup was this many days away. Where do we need to be? Uh, the talent identification had largely been done, except for some last minute additions. Um, but it, it was preparing and seeing who could go to that level of compete, who could fit the style of play. Um you know, that, that tab wanted to impose uh, when we got there. So, so yeah, I think uh, the main difference was, was identifying talent versus, you know, kind of curving a team to be ready for a major tournament. Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. Bounce Athletics are offering you an additional 10% discount just for listening to this episode of the 343 podcast. When I spoke to Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, he mentioned one of the most common problems that coaches and players and teams have when it comes to their training equipment. And this is what he had to say. Finding goals that are portable, um, that can be moved from environment to environment quickly and perform just as well on grass as they do on turf as they do on hardwood or, or wherever at. Thankfully, that problem has been solved thanks to the Dynamo goals made by Bounce Athletics. They have revolutionized people's training sessions. For those that don't know, they're a three by five, all aluminum frame. They fold flat in like five seconds and they you pop them back up in a couple seconds. The moment I saw the Dynamo goals in action, I was totally convinced that these were the best goals on the market. And since using the Dynamo goals, I haven't even touched the other goals that I have had for years. And I was curious about who else was already using these. So I asked Zach, and here's what he had to say. Everything from recreational programs that are using them for their 3v3 and 4v4 to college and pro teams that have 20 of them. 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. All right, let's get back to the show. I want to go back to something that you mentioned, and, and I, I, I maybe should have should have mentioned it earlier too. And it's something that means a lot to me. It's a topic that means a lot to me, but this idea that, you know, soccer is just a game um, is a, is a very hot topic for me. Uh, and I, I had a little bit of, of, of an experience seeing this firsthand um, with a, with an equipment manager. I happened to be in Europe the same time that, that, a, that a national team um, was traveling and playing in Europe and I got a chance to meet one of the equipment managers that was based in Florida was based at uh, Bradenton and mm -hmm. when when they got back uh, from that trip Bradenton was going to be closing and this is mm -hmm. somebody that had been you know a full-time employee at Bradenton for for I, I want to say like four or five years and all of a sudden mm -hmm. this was going to be taken away from him so his life was going to change because of this and right. and, and people fail to realize that there's these different aspects and, and, and angles to the game. And it's way more than just a game. You have these guys that are the equipment managers that this is their life. This is their livelihood. This is, this is so much more than, you know, just a recreational activity that kids play on, on Saturdays and Sundays when, when their parents drop them off at the park. And so having that perspective kind of arms you with, you know, uh, or, or gives you a better understanding of, of how this is supposed to fit into the global picture of soccer. And I find it that it's, it's super important for people to understand that. And, and, and it's hard to talk to people about that because they're so zoomed in on their own environment. A lot of times that they can't, or they, or they just refuse to see, you know, the different, the different angles. And, and so again, it's, it's, it's part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on the show, man. 
Yeah, I, I can certainly, I can speak to that for sure. I mean, it's, I would say that my job as the equipment manager was, was one of the, the best periods of life for me where I could, you know, go and travel, be around the game at the high level, have access to some of the guys that were coming through the pipeline in our development system and now watching them to go on to make their, their debuts, whether it was at January camp now or, you know, just before that or has been in the last year. So that was an extremely special time for me, you know, but in terms of, of the sustainability of it all, I mean, based on, you know, I have no problem saying based on, on the wages that the Federation was able to, to compensate you for, um, for these specific jobs, even though, you know, you're the guy that's the first one up, you know, getting the laundry, sorting the laundry, you know, maybe it's 6 a.m. And then you're going to bed, you know, at midnight every night for 38 days straight at, at qualifying. You know, you know, it's a it's a hard lifestyle to be a part of if you're constantly on the road where you're, you know, you're somewhere across the world for 12 days and you come home and you're home for nine and then you're away for another 12. You come home, you're home for five and then you're away for, you know, an, a 30 day stint at like a World Cup. So uh, that can be very you know, physically and emotionally taxing, having to be switched on all the time. But at the at the end of the day, you know, I, I couldn't continue to do it just because you know, where it was putting me state you know i love the job and i did it for the passion of it i love this game i've been enveloped of it since i was a kid so it was it was really important to me but like financially i just i, I couldn't make it work uh, especially living in, in an urban center like chicago just uh, i didn't have the, the finances to continue doing it so um that's why i decided to get out after the 2017 world cup in korea how how does that work for you how did you did you design like an exit strategy? Did you have a plan in place for, you know, the day that you would eventually leave? Or was it kind of, you know, this just feels like the right time and, and I'll figure out the next steps as I go? What, what was that process like for you? Sure. Well, you know, I've been with the team, the same core group of players, like I said, for almost two years. So those guys, uh, you know, when you're traveling with, you know, the same group of players for a long time, uh, they could become, you know, almost like part of uh, your family in a way. You're seeing these guys all the time, the same guys on staff. You know, I see these guys more than I see my actual family, um, you know, whether it's the players or the staff members. And so when those guys were kind of graduating and moving on from that, that U20 level, uh, you know, uh, I would love to get to know another group of players. Uh, what it kind of looked like for me, my exit strategy, if you will, is, you know, I was looking at jobs kind of preemptively, um, you know, as it led up to the World Cup, um, knowing that I really couldn't, you know, sit down and have interviews with people because I was going to be halfway across the world in Japan and Korea for that time. So I, I'd saved up uh, enough money um, trying to be as frugal as possible to buy myself a little bit of a window when I did get out of camp or did get out of the World Cup where I could come back and and uh, and start really hitting the job search hard, uh, depending on you know which direction I wanted to take it, whether that was jumping kind of back into journalism or whether that was trying something new. Um, but I always, you know, I'd fixed it enough with the Federation where, you know, I could come back and do the odd camp for whatever national team may need me at the time. There wasn't a, I didn't feel like I was leaving completely cold turkey. I could still use the Federation as a fallback. Um, but, but yeah, I actually stayed home and, uh, for like four months, we had just gotten a puppy when I arrived home from, from <laughs> Korea. It, it was, it was at home and it was at my feet after a 24 hour travel day. So it was, uh, so I actually was a puppy daddy for about four months and that was, that was fantastic times too. A little bit frustrating, a little bit hard to, to manage the, uh, the job search while you got a, a little pug crawling up your leg, but, um, you know, made it work and. Yeah, that was that was part of the the exit strategy. I even leaned on U.S. Soccer, where I thought I might be able to, you know, go back into the federation in a more permanent capacity, uh, maybe in another role. Um, and I had, you know, talks about that, but at the end of the day, it's it just didn't work out uh, again, um, mainly from a financial standpoint. So it was uh, it was a shame to leave the federation, mainly because if anything, you know, I got great experiences out of it, and going forward, it really. You know, having the U.S. Soccer Federation on my resume was very nice. I think that's what ultimately helped me, you know, land the job that I'm currently working. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, it was bittersweet because I realized that you know that was an experience I could only have while I was young when I you know could afford the flexibility in my life. And and so yeah, after the World Cup, it was it was time to identify that next chapter. Yeah, once you become a dog dad, your your life changes, man. Like the responsibilities. And... <laughs> it really is. People said that uh, 
they go, you know, like, oh, well, wait till you have like a real baby. I was like, yeah, but if you have like a newborn, you put it down, it's not going to go anywhere. I was like, but if you have an actual like a puppy and you put it down, then you turn around, it's like it's munched your carpet to bits or, you know, like <laughs> it's peed on something. So like they're less mobile um, uh, infants than, than puppies. But uh, but I, I certainly don't envy those that you know have to put in the work of a, uh, of a child. I understand how much of a big responsibility that is. That's that's funny, man. I have I have two humongous dogs of my own, so I, I know that. Oh, life. do you? What kind of dogs do you have? They're half Australian Shepherd, half Great Pyrenees. So they're they're and they're they're oh, litter wow. mates, and they're both boys, and they're both about 120 pounds. So, oh wow! So uh, I'm sure that's a handful of lives. Yeah, so. dude, gigantic beasts. They're 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 <laughs> like wild animals. It's crazy. I think um, I've seen the pictures on Instagram. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, which is okay. So this is a good transition. So this is kind of how we got connected. Actually, was was through social media, and you mentioned something. Uh, just a minute ago that I wanted to come back to as well. And that was your writing. And, and that's what really caught my attention from you is that you wrote, I mean, I, I think you, you posted something on, on your own personal website and, and I enjoyed reading the story. And so I kind of reached out to you and, and, and we connected in that way. And, um, and, and again, that's going to be a part of the, the intro for this, this podcast is, is a, you know, kind of a story that you ha- had wrote. And so I wanted to it, get your get your fee or get your um i don't know what, what the question I'm, that i'm trying to ask um i just want to hear you talk about you know what writing is in, in your life right now and and how you've kind of leaned on that and um where where you've kind of ended up since um coming back from that 2017 world cup and and what you're up to these days so kind of just incorporate the writing aspect in uh, of of your life into you know where where you've gone today Cool. Yeah. Um, journalism's always been something I'm a little bit passionate about. And I'd say that to an extent. Uh, I really like writing. I've always considered myself a, a storyteller. Um, but I'm a, I'm a bit stubborn in a way where I said, if I'm going to write about anything, I'm, I'm going to write about the thing that I love. And that's the sport, soccer, football, whatever you want to put it. So um, I'm sure there's been opportunities for me in the past to go into, hey, you want to do journalism, you can literally write about everything. But I was almost too picky. So I was like, I'm either going to write about soccer, or I'm going to write about nothing. Now, it turns out that, you know, beggars can't be choosers. You can't break into the journalism game and just like become just a, a soccer reporter. That's not how it works. And there's hundreds of people, thousands of people out there would love to do that specific job. So, you know, I've lately, um, you know, I haven't gotten away from journalism because I still like to write. I still write down my ideas in terms of the content I produced. Probably not so much, but in the past before, you know, I could, you know, I actually had a full time job where I had to, you know, do actual work every day to, to make ends meet. I, uh, you know, I wrote a, a couple pieces for um, various mediums, um, you know, kind of mostly web based um, Vabel, which is like an international sports newspaper that I wrote a little bit for mainly kind of like column kind of articles uh, about La Liga. Uh, I wrote some articles for uh, Howler magazines online uh, web medium. Uh, which was good. Um, I also did an article for, I think it was in print for The Turf, which is an Australian kind of, I think it's a quarterly. Actually, I had not much content uh, from them or any contact from them since I wrote that article. So um, journalism is always something I really enjoyed. I like to write about my experiences in the game. I like to, you know, voice my opinions about the professional game um i I wish i could you know do more of it uh there's a bit time constraints uh, especially now as i'm in the process of a move from chicago to boston so um you know my time is running thin but but certainly hope to be you know writing more and continuing to write i've always found soccer to be an outlet and the only thing that uh that I was never really good at from an academic standpoint was, uh, was writing or creative writing. So I like to tie the two together just to, you know, get things off my chest or get things out of my mind and sometimes formulate it into something else that, that someone else may enjoy. So, so yeah, that's journalism for me and, you know, we'll see what, what happens in the future, but uh, I'll always probably continue to write as, as long as I, as I live, I guess. And, and what's the, what's the next move for you? So you, you hinted that, you're moving from Chicago to to Boston. Is this a soccer move or, or what's going on? Yeah, sure. So, well, currently I work at catapult sports um, and few people have a visibility on exactly what catapult does. Cause it, it mainly, you know, works in the shadows and you may not know it by name, but people see, uh, you know, pictures of training, whether it's MLS clubs or, or Premier League clubs, and they see the GPS garments uh, on players almost look like little sports bras. So, so currently I work for catapult. That's what they do. They do, you know, sports performance technology 
uh, the biggest GPS provider in the world. The teams like the French national team this summer or, uh, or Real Madrid, you know, uses our, our technology. So, so fairly, you know, large client base in terms of, you know, the audacity of some of these teams, but also getting down and more into my specific rules help implementing this kind of technology more low touch uh, in developmental settings, whether that's high schools, whether that's colleges, whether that's youth clubs or development academies, uh, making this technology more, I would say, more affordable um, relative to, you know, the kind of GPS units that are being worn at Real Madrid or making it you know more low touch so you don't necessarily have to be a sports scientist to apply the metric data that you're getting so i work in a, in a sales marketing capacity for catapult and um our, our national headquarters in north america is out of boston um actually in a suburb called wilmington so i am uh, on the way to to cambridge here in, in a couple of weeks time to to set up uh, the next chapter in life and uh, really looking forward to it that's so awesome dude and I like the I like the idea of you know getting getting the equipment down to you know the lower levels and 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 getting those programs away or giving those programs away to feel a little bit more professional and 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 do things a little bit differently do the things that, that you know the kids see on TV I think I think all that stuff is super important and um you know what people ultimately do with the numbers and and things like that like that's a whole another topic um that we could probably talk for hours on but um but just just giving the kids and the teams and the coaches a more professional experience i think is is what this country needs more of it at every single level so i i think that that's that's you know that's a step in the right direction yeah it's definitely a uh definitely kind of what intrigued me to come on um you know i i had um, experience with the sports wearable technology when I was with the national teams. And obviously we deployed that kind of stuff um, at us soccer, um, you know, and I saw kind of what it did and I was actually part of the workflow of helping get the garments to the players as the equipment manager. So, um, you know, I, I kind of already had an understanding of what it did. And when there was this opportunity to come on a, a catapult um, out of Chicago where I was already living, it was a, a no brainer for me. I had a conversation the other day with a referee, um, Actually, it was an email exchange. Um, a referee from where is he from? Australia, and mm-hmm. he uh, they do they do like referee reporting and 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 like score or uh, match match reporting and recording, and they do it all like through an app. And and I was trying to think of ways that you know you could get referees the the technology that exists in the Premier League and La Liga things like that. And and one of the things that lower level referees miss out on is the headsets and how valuable uh, mm-hmm. having that communication during games really is. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult for, for youth referees to communicate with each other when they're on opposite ends of the field, but a headset would solve the problem. Okay. Well, not everybody has, you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks to drop on a headset. So how sure. can we make it more affordable for younger referees, um, lower level referees to experience that same feel of, of uh, or that same level of communication, but for much, much, much cheaper. And so I, I pitched him the idea of like, dude, somebody needs to make an app where you can, you know, be wearing an Apple Watch or have your have your iPhone nearby, and you just use the the Apple ear earpod, like the wireless uh, earpod, and yeah. you have to wear one of them in your ear, and it has a microphone, and then all of a sudden, all these people have access to you know that level of communication for ninety nine bucks or whatever it is for those earpods. Like that's mm-hmm. you know, a significant advancement in, in, in lower level refereeing, I, I would assume. So, you know, I, I just, I, I, I kind of, I'm intrigued by all the, like the, the technology and everything, the advancements that are going to be coming towards the lower levels of the game that, that really interests me. Yeah. I think technology will just continue to become more omnipresent, um, you know, at every level as we kind of just move into the future naturally. So, uh, yeah, I like that idea. You're a referee yourself, aren't you? Yep. Yep. And, and I experienced that. So I experienced that firsthand of, you know, how crucial communication can be in certain match moments and not having the ability to communicate with your assistant referee when you're being swarmed by players or, um, you know, you know, a coach, a coach is saying something on the sideline, but play is going the other way. And, and then, you know, you, you don't have the ability to talk to your referee on the sideline, things like that. Like there's so many different, different instances when, you know, just a simple, you know, sentence or, or a piece of communication can make all the difference in the temperature of a match. And when you, when you're missing that, 
you know, that's, I, I mean, this is, this is my suspicion again, is that's what leads to like these out of control parents and out of control coaches and out of control players that we see so often in American soccer, American youth soccer specifically. And it comes down to kind of just a lack of, of communication and, and lack of control of the game. But it, it can come down to, you know, just that missing piece of the puzzle, which could be a little earpiece. So. Right. Yeah. And I understand what you mean. A long time when that communication, you know, with whether a coach or the players, when it's delayed because you're trying to communicate with your other referees, it almost it gives the perception that, you know, maybe you're underqualified, but really it's just a breakdown of communication because you don't have the means to, to clearly, you know, orchestrate your ideas to, I guess, what are your ref mates? I don't know if teammates is the proper word, but, yeah, uh, teammates, but yeah, in a way. Crewmates, cool. Um, but yeah, yeah, I can understand that for sure. Yeah, no, it's 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 cool, and you're seeing a little bit more now at the at the higher levels now with VAR, and and you can kind of see, you know, the center ref or yeah, the the referee just standing on the field with his hand on his ear, and he's he's waiting for the communication to come in. But mm. you know, when it was just the three referees or the four referees with the fourth official on the field, you know, they're, those guys are constantly talking to each other all the time. Like there's there there's constant chatter. There there's um. A very good clip from um, NBCSN. They put it on there of, of a Premier League referee and, and, and you know going through a, a dog so situation and the communication from from everybody you know in the referee's ear and the referee I think even says like hey stop like shut up like I'm like I'm here I see it so I, I, it's just funny to see all that play out but the, those moments are 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 very crucial they're match changing and like you mentioned you know if if it's a moment where the referee has to kind of go to one assistant referee and then go to the other assistant referee it can make it can make it seem like you know things are in chaos or the referee doesn't know what they're doing but really you know they're getting to the bottom of it and and they're trying to get it right and and you know that can be a 2 or 3 minute delay or 4 minute 5 minute delay sometimes and and that just ruins the flow of the game when sometimes you know it could just be something that an earpiece and and two or three sentences could solved so yeah, definitely. I, I want to get your opinion on uh, on VAR. Obviously, it's a hot topping point. You know, yeah. it's, you know, it's obviously. I think, in my opinion, it improved the game. It, it helps you know important decisions you know be reviewed and, and you know make a better decision if there's an incorrect decision or reinforce uh, the correct decision that was made on the field. But I find myself as I'm watching you know soccer on television now in a in a competition that has implemented VAR. I almost feel like if a goal is scored, I'm almost hesitant to celebrate. You know what I mean? We're like that pure raw emotion where I realize the guy's not offside, where I like go to like celebrate and like my hands are like up and I'm cheering and I'm excited. And it's almost like this pit in my stomach. I go, what if? Hold on. They're going to they're going to look at this as they look at every goal. And so I almost feel like my celebrations are more muted or more you know subdued nowadays just because I know there's, there's a chance it could be turned over. You know, do you find that that's that's good for the game or do you find that? You know, I don't necessarily know how to phrase the question, but uh, but I found that something that I'm dealing with. And I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, even if I think that VAR is improving the uh, the decision making. My my feeling is that it's only going to get better, and you know, we have to go through this growing pain of of just impl- of, of just beginning to implement it. And I think mm-hmm. that I think that there's going to be different variations of VAR until every and until everything becomes uniform um and everybody is implementing it the same way i think you're still going to get that type of emotion like i i think that it's very uh, the way that it is implemented in mls is very different than the way it is implemented or was implemented at the world cup um and i i i think that the way that it was implemented at the world cup was far was far better um minus the uh, handball uh, you know, in the final against Croatia, I thought I thought that was bullshit. But I'm also Croatian, and so um, there's bias there. But um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I think until everybody is is uniform and until the the technology catches up to you know what we actually need, it's it's gonna it's gonna be a rocky road. Um, one of the things that I notice, like if you watch the VAR screens and, and I've never, I've never experienced VAR personally. So this is, you know, this is me just kind of being an observer, observer from, from the outside looking in. Um, but the way that they slice up the field and, and the, and the lines and the, and the um, tools that they have to, to, to determine if things are, are, you know, on or off or in or out or, you know, foul or not. I, I think that those tools are only going to get, be, get better and stronger. Um, and, and everything's just going to keep getting faster and faster as well to the point where, you know, the referee, 
I, I suspect that the referees are going to be eliminated within, you know, 10 or 15 years. So that's, that's my feeling is that, you know, you're eventually just going to have people in a box pressing a button and something's going to light up on the field and the you know possession is just going to change. That's my suspicion, but who knows? <laughs> wow. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, it would be crazy. But, but I literally think that, you know, um, you know, a camera in place of the assistant referee on the sideline, a camera that just moves back and forth and is able to track the ball or second to last defender is going to be far mm-hmm. more accurate than a human. And and it's only a matter of time before something on that sideline that's, you know, referee, um, you know, referee level, like where, you know, you know, the cameras that are like on the strings that kind of hover over the field. Like it's going to be something like that on the sideline that might replace an assistant referee because it's going to be 100% accurate or 99.9% accurate. And, 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 you know, the only thing that's going to come after that is, is replacing the center referee. And I just think that that's just going to be a natural progression of technology. So. Yeah. I mean, it just got to get I mean, I guess it'll be kind of like a league wide deal with those kind of things, but the installation of those products. um, Yeah. I definitely, you know, AI, you know, where robots can't make mistakes unless you're watching a movie. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I see that for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, dude. Uh, is there, is there anything? Well, I, I have to ask you my, my famous last question, but I, I want to make sure that we, that we touched on, on everything that I think we needed to touch on. Is there anything that you, that you came in wanting to uh, get off your chest or, or a topic that we needed to cover? Well, I know that when you and I talked, um, you know, in, in December, when I was, uh, I think I was in Minneapolis, when we spoke, we spoke about kind of what the Federation looks like from, from the inside, uh, yep. from that perspective. I know that you, know, you were cautious, uh, you know, about wanting to ask me those questions, depending on how much I'd be like willing to give away. And uh, I don't think that, you know, I would be doing a disservice by, by talking about those things. Um if it was something that you're curious about or you have questions about, you know, my perspective from kind of being on the inside, um, those are things that I'm willing to talk about. If it's, you know, uh, you know, if there's a question I feel uncomfortable answering, I'll certainly let you know. But, you know, now's your chance. If you do want to you know, ask those <laughs> questions, uh, you know, I'd be more than happy to field them. Yeah, you, you kind of mentioned that, you know, it was a very positive experience for you. You you enjoyed what you were doing. The pay the pay didn't quite match what you uh what you needed in order to continue in the role that you had um but that that's not to say that you know you you weren't able to see the inner workings of of the federation and and yeah i guess you know if if you can just kind of speak on you know your your perspective (coughs) of having that insider view of how things are handled and and how you now see the reaction in in the media to certain things and you see how the games play out obviously you know the score lines when they happen on tv but how how has your your lens been been impacted how how has your view been impacted because of your experience from the inside yeah, I would say that, you know, from U.S. soccer, you know, from the outside before I ever joined, before I ever started working, before I ever had the privilege of being able to put on the crest and go to training every day, I thought it was, you know, or maybe expected it to be just this uh, well-oiled machine um, that, you know, everything was done at a super high level, that it was extremely well organized. And and kind of the longer I stuck around, the longer I realized that it, things are, are kind of a, a bit sloppy. And I think a good anecdote uh, for what I mean is, you know, I talked about when you know, I stopped working um, for U.S. Soccer as the equipment manager, and there was an opportunity to jump back in. I actually had, had found a, a role uh, with the DA uh, that they were hiring for. So, um, you know, I haven't already kind of have an in and, and be able to apply online and be like, hey, I've already worked for the Federation for, you know, the past two years or so, you know, uh, interested in this role from more of a – it was more of an administrative capacity with the DA. And, and at the end of the day, I told you I'd – we, I went down. I had the interview the next day at Soccer House. It was very easy for me to get there on the L in Chicago. Got down there, spent the entire day shadowing people, sat in on a couple meetings, um, had like a final kind of interview at the end of the day. They said they'd let me know. And I think even the next day, uh, they offered me the position. Now, I already mentioned that, you know, financially, I just couldn't make it work uh, in Chicago. So I eventually took the catapult job, which I'm extremely, extremely pleased about. Uh, but it was, I mean, that was. Uh, that was 14, 15 months ago um, when those like kind of interviews were like, taking place. And I only got an email about, I don't know, two or three months ago 
um, from U.S. Soccer that said, you know, thank you for um, for applying for the job. We've decided to go in another direction, uh, which I thought was a bit weird considering they offered me the role, they offered me the position, and I, you know, I re- respectively turned it down. But and it just, I, th- I think that kind of sums up that you know, not everyone's uh, on the same page, um, and that uh, you know, again, I don't want to continue to bring up the pay, but I think that. You know, there's a lot of valuable people that work in the federation and we could have a lot of valuable people added to that that staff if, you know, they were able to compensate um, a little bit better. That way there would be less turnover on the inside and more consistency. And um, and I'm only saying that as feedback because I obviously want the federation to improve and, and get better. Um, but I do know a lot of people that work very hard and you know, I wish they were getting, you know, more um, for, you know, for the work that they do. Now, you know, I'm not someone that has, you know, the books in my hand that can tell you where all this money goes. There's a lot of things that need to be tended to at U.S. Soccer. So, you know, me wanting more pay for either myself or some other people that I work hard, you know, it, maybe it's just a dream. And, and I'd like to maybe they are allocating the money in the proper in the proper tools. But, you know, I, I see how much money is goes into you know, like say socks for all the youth national teams or goalkeeping socks that, you know, sit in, in a warehouse uh, that for past kits or past uh, color schemes that are, are just being untouched at 40 bucks a pair that can really pile up. So, um, you know, I see some of it, but not all of it. So, you know, I, I think that U.S. soccer has trouble recruiting top talent to do jobs within the federation because, you know, they, they don't necessarily compensating people in that way where, you know, those people could very easily jump ship and go do another job that can, you know, either pay them better or, you know, I think U.S. soccer sometimes just leans on the fact that they are the federation. They're an entity to be, you know, an entity to be revered. So so people want to come work for them, even if the pay isn't perfect for them. But, I, you know, I wish the consistency was a little bit better because then everyone be on more of the same page and you kind of drive forward in the same boat, all rowing in the same direction uh, rather than people jumping ship, uh, you know, quite frequently. So that would be my input on what U S soccer looks on the inside for me. Dude, the, the idea or the, the picture that you just painted for me of, you know, everybody rowing in the same direction and, and using that as, as a metaphor for, you know, just American soccer in general, it's like other countries and you could use Iceland, you can use Belgium, you could use Spain, you could use France, um, you know, some, some, a lot of other countries, you could say, you know, all their ducks are in a row and, and, and they're all, you know, they're all heading in the same direction. And if you look at it, American soccer, it's like, you just throw a bunch of things in a pool and everybody's just splashing around just randomly. Like, you know, that, that's kind of what would, would be a more accurate picture of, of American soccer. You have the DA, you have ECNL, you have all these other state organizations, you have everybody kind of just, you know, fighting for survival instead of working <clears throat> together. And, and yeah, like you, like you kind of said, like U S soccer is just supposed to be revered and, and everybody's just supposed to just respect it for, for, you know, for the crest and, and mm-hmm. because it, because it's for the country and it's like, no, like they need to step up and be leaders. They need to step up and get everybody rowing in the right direction. So that's, that's yeah. brilliant. I, uh, yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think there's, I mean, I very much respect the Federation. I appreciate everything they've done for me. Uh, like I said, it was a great ride. I think for, <laughs> you know, what we talk about, you know, the ECNL and the DA and youth clubs and, you know, with the fractured U.S. soccer pyramid, you know, I'm putting those pieces together. You know, that that's ideally, I think, what everyone wants. I just think it's... First of all, due respect to the Federation, it's a massive task to tackle um, all these different problems, all these different visions. Um, you know, who's going to feel shortchanged at the end of it? Who has the idea? Who has the master plan to put this all together? Now, I do think it would be a little bit easier if you had the same people in place or the same people, like I said, without the turnover. Um, or we had a consistent group uh, of men and women that are, you know, all working, you said, in the same direction on the same goal. So if there was less turnover, um, all the way down from, you know, the youth national team per diem equipment coordinators all the way up to, you know, head coaches and uh, of youth national teams all the way up to the very top, the president, um, you know, all that Ernie Stewart, all those guys. Um, so like I said, I don't have the answers to these to these problems. Um, I just wish that, you know, there was in my perfect mind, there was less less of a shakeup in the federation where uh you know everyone could get on the same page and start doing the same things to tackle these problems together not to say that they aren't trying um because i have very little visibility on that but just kind of from what i saw 
uh, it just seemed a little bit fractured in, in terms of communication. And at the end of the day, going back to what we were talking about referees, you know, if, if the communication isn't good, the perception of it from the outside is maybe that things aren't going so well. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's my two cents, what it was like being a Federation employee. Um, but at the end of the day, nothing but respect. And, um, you know, I hope this, uh, this new regime, especially the new men's national team head coach and the women's world cup coming up this summer that, you know, good things are on the horizon. Absolutely, dude. Um, the question that I end every interview with is something that you may have already touched on or, or answered, but I'm, I'm going to ask it anyways. And if, if it's the same answer that you've already given, just give it again. If, if it's something different that comes to mind, then, then please share. But um, what, do, what do people need to know? And, and this is just from your, your perspective. You have a very unique angle that you've been able to see American soccer from. So I'm really curious what, what your answer would be to what do people need to know? I think people need to know that, uh, it, at least I may have touched on it already, is that everyone has a, has a different philosophy or a different idea as to what's going to go on or what should go on within the Federation, what should be a priority. And at the end of the day, there's only so much manpower. There's only so much money. Um, there's only so much equipment. I mean, there'd even be where I was instances where we were playing a game in like Paris or something like that. And there'd be little kids, you know, lining up to get gear when I, you know, hardly had had gear to give the players um, for that specific camp that was allocated to me. So, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a big entity, U.S. soccer, like we talked about, but it's not limitless. Like a lot of people think there's certainly limitations to what they are able to do. Um, and even though I think there can be certain processes that are maybe streamlined or done better, uh like myself, no one has all the answers and that everyone that's inside the Federation or outside the Federation is only hoping for the same goal to improve U.S. soccer. So if there's anything you need to know is that no one's trying to destroy the sport in this country. Um, you know, everyone's everyone's working towards the same goal, but whether or not we're rowing at the same pace or, you know, in, in different directions or taking different routes to get there. Uh, that's where I think people need to just collaborate, uh, understand where, where other people are coming from and neither you know, compromise or, uh, or maybe just develop a, a better plan. Cause the more opinions you have, uh, the more information you have to work with. So, so I would say that's what, uh, from my perspective, you know, from a U.S. soccer perspective, that's what people should, should understand and know. Perfect. I love it, dude. Um, well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you, you working with me to, to get this, to get this recorded, man. I know we've been talking about this for, for at least a few months now. So it's a, it's a joy to actually, you know, put a check mark next to this one yeah john it was, a, it was a pleasure i enjoyed the chat you know always up for another chat at some other point in time so you know let, let's continue to be in touch i had a lot of fun doing this and talking to someone else that's as, as passionate about soccer as i am absolutely real quick before you go um where where can people find ways to connect with you and and read some of the stories that you've posted and, and whatnot Sure. Well, uh, you know, I'm obviously on Twitter as uh, at Bobby Moore, spelled M-O-H-R-5 um, is my Twitter handle. Uh, my Instagram handle where, uh, you know, I'm just kind of more updates about my life rather than soccer specific stuff is uh, at Bobinho5, spelled like Robinho, uh, B-O-B-I-N-H-O-5. And then uh, I do write at um, my personal website when I ever get a chance to at uh, the other Bobby Moore um dot com i think there's some hyphens in there um but it's uh it's linked in uh, both my instagram and my twitter so um feel free to uh to log on and see if i'm cooking up anything you know recently awesome and i'll i'll link to all that stuff in the uh in the show notes of this as well and it looks like we have like 15 minutes now before real madrid kicks off so i'm sure you're excited about that right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I would like to say that Real Madrid is gonna is gonna easily progress to the next round of the Copa today, but <laughs> I've seen too much this season to put all my eggs in that basket. So uh, I've got to get some work done too. But but I'll, I'll try to peek up at the screen every now and then. All right, Bobby, I appreciate your time, dude, and uh, I'll I'll shoot you the links and everything when when this is uh, gonna be released. And and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future, dude. Yeah, sure thing, John. Thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. 
I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 Coaching Education Program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review. And I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.